0: Can I welcome you all this evening? First to introduce myself, uh, Christopher Coker. I am the head of the International Relations Department, but I'm here this evening as a, as a member uh, of the Advisory Board of Ideas. This is an Ideas lecture. Uh, it's sponsored, uh, an Ideas-sponsored lecture, and I'm delighted to welcome Professor Paul Kennedy, who is the Philip Romain chair here uh, this uh, academic year, as well as, of course, being professor of history at Yale University. Professor Kennedy wrote a path-breaking, very much admired book called The Rise and Fall of the Great Powers in 1988. Uh, Books, like people, uh, sometimes uh, have a tide and a tide. It was very well received when it came out in the 1990s. There were some people, particularly neoconservatives, who tended to be somewhat dismissive of it in the period of the unipolar moment. Uh, Now, of course, as the unipolar moment of the United States probably ebbs away in Iraq, and we are fascinated by the rise of other great powers who we didn't really discuss very much in the 1990s, China and India. Uh, His book is very much back again uh, on the syllabus. I think the test of a great book is that it does transcend uh, fashion. But I'd also like to welcome um, Professor Kennedy as a military historian. The Rise of Naval Mastery is one of my favorite uh, books and as as an essayist and I I discovered a marvelous essay you wrote many years ago uh, in which you talked about the decline of the British Empire, which you said as decline of empires go was fairly graceful, and you used the analogy of a car driver who was heading towards a cliff. And you said that there are a number of things you can do when you're about to go over a cliff. Uh, You can actually put the brakes on, uh, which is essentially what the UK did, or you can follow the disconcerting habit of other countries, which is to press your foot down on the accelerator, Uh, or even more disconcertingly, to try to slow your uh, inevitable demise by uh, deliberately hitting oncoming traffic. (laughs) I think that's a a very telling uh, metaphor for empires. Tonight, uh, Professor Kennedy is with us again not to talk about the United Nations or some of the other subjects that he has talked about at the school and that he's written about in recent years. He's going back to the theme of empire. He will be discussing three empires tonight, the Roman, the Spanish, and the British. Two of them, I believe I'm correct in saying, were on the list of empires that Donald Rumsfeld commissioned when he became Defence Secretary uh, in the early years of the Bush administration. We look forward very much, Professor Kennedy, to your talk this evening. And is- <laughs> Thank you. Do we, have that, uh, do we have that microphone or not?
1: Was a clip-on mic I
0: just
1: for? Yes, never mind. i Okay. A laser pointer. Well, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'm uh, delighted to be here. Delighted to see some of you. See some of you again. Um, this talk is something of uh, an experiment. Uh, it is already identified as not being concerned with immediate issues like the United Nations or the U.S. Although I will talk a bit about the U.S. Uh, at the end. I uh, want to explore with you some ideas which I regard as almost a hidden agenda of the study of of empires which is um, their nuts and bolts Uh, how they work Uh, why they worked for so long what their intelligence and nervous systems were what their fiscal and logistical uh, systems were this is in particular about things logistical um, how you get things from one place to another Uh, I don't know if any of you ever read a wonderful book by the Israeli military historian Martin van Krefeld on uh, supplying war and uh, the subtitle was logistics military logistics from Wallenstein that is the 30 years war to Patton in the second world war There was a wonderful blurb on the back by somebody who had the desperate job of being General Patton's chief logistical officer as he was charging across Europe. And the retired Major General said, essential reading for all armchair strategists who move armies across the Alps with a stroke of a pen. Uh, I, I... read that about 35 years ago, and the more I think about it, the more I realize how um, how valid that is. So what I'm going to do is to talk tonight about four empires we know pretty well. They're almost the standard is- issue empires. If you go to the Naval War College or West Point or Sandhurst, you get these without a doubt. Uh, the Roman Empire... Imperial Spanish Empire and uh, the British Empire before I then reflect a bit upon the U.S. I'm not going to get involved in whether it's an empire or not. I'm talking about four countries with superpower or hyperpower status. Now, I see that I have a totally different form of controlling the the PowerPoints than I had last time when I had my own... um, my own laptop, so I'm just going to, (laughs) aha, one down. Um, I have some general questions for you to ponder on. Do these systems I'm going to talk about, these systems of supply, of underpinnings, of support, uh, do they grow organically, just like a giant plant over time? were they cultivated or planned were they put into system early on and they proved to be so good especially compared with uh, your current rivals that they they continued and when they failed as they all did remember Rousseau's quip if uh, Roman Carthage fell which empire is then immortal And the answer was no, not even Mr. Rumsfeld. But do they go just because of old age, mental fatigue, overextension, uh, running out of energy, uh, or having created so many rivals that eventually they are overcome on different sides? Let me try and answer that by um, looking immediately then at... uh, Perhaps the classic case, the most admired and in some ways emulated one of all, uh, the Roman Empire. There is an illustration typical of God knows how many historical atlases, since the Germans began to invent historical atlases uh, 150 years ago. Uh, The Roman Empire at its greatest extent... Um, nice, impressive, coherent tied together or perhaps not tied together by the Mediterranean. Uh, But there it is with all of the provinces um, ranging from Dacia to to Mauritania uh, from Jerusalem over to Scotland. Uh, And it's there in 2017 it's been somewhere like that for a few hundred years beforehand, it's going to be something like that for the 250 years afterwards. Uh, how did it hold together? Um, just a beneficent set of Roman gods? Uh, how did you actually get from A to B? Well, one clue is to go to those stores which sell after-dinner games. Uh, this one is called SPQR. I don't have to tell the classically trained in the audience what SPQR stands for. But this is how the Senate and not very few of the populi of Rome uh, would, would travel. Uh, it's, it's, co- it's dense and complicated. What I was trying to show on that map, almost a similar size and extent of the previous one, are the main ports the main lines of uh, road communication, uh, the lines of trans-channel and trans-Mediterranean uh, lines of, of commerce and, and reinforcement. Um, it, it's, it's interesting because, we, well like all of those games you have to read the rules and play the rules and toss the dice and sometimes you lose Mauritania and sometimes you gain Mauritania what's interesting about it to me is uh, something I'll show you about uh, in the next slide um, but it's about the fact that this is actually a, an intelligent wiring system this is how you moved this is how a legion moved this is how they uh, corn and grain and wheat from North Africa moved and their olives and oranges from Spain and they moved along safe lines and uh, they were not extreme distances I'm going to come on to that in a moment but just look at this uh, you, you're going to have to uh, screw your eyes a bit for the rest of this session I'm afraid uh, let me explain what this one is where are the legions? Uh, this is the geographical disposition of the 27 existing full legions, uh, just a, about a generation and a half before that, Rome at its heaviest extent. So the map that you've just seen, with all of these ports and lines of communications, is, is a commercial map. It's a transport map. Where the legions were, were at those parts of the frontier. you you never put a legion in Rome because it might decide to take over and do silly things like that but the legions are situated at those parts of the frontier where there are on the other side of the frontier the greatest threats therefore down in the Rhine Valley as you can see the Germanic tribes um, also along the Danube vis-a-vis Dacia and then a lot of them in the eastern Mediterranean to keep an eye on those noxious Persians, uh, w- uh, the White House is not the only uh, institution which has problems with Iran. Uh, the Romans had problems with Iran for about 350 years. Um, now think of this: No one of us legions, apart from that distant one in, in Spain, no one of these legions was more than nine marching days away from the next. They marched a lot, as you know, but no one was more nine marching days away from the next one. It meant that if there was a sudden attack by the Germanic tribes coming over the bridges at Cologne, uh, you could ask for reinforcements. You'd have to hold those bridges, but you'd have ask for reinforcements. So what the Romans did was to create an imperial messenger system with stables located every 25 miles along the networks. Uh, with fresh horses, so that whoever your general was in, in the lower Rhine sending a message for uh, relief and support, the imperial messenger would jump on a horse and gallop down. After 25 miles, he would find a fresh horse and gallop on, or he would be replaced by another imperial messenger. Everybody had to uh, get out of the way. The system was built as a communications network a reinforcement network what I'm talking about Dan is um, a society which was so far better organized than any contemporary society that they just gasped didn't know what to do how could you imitate how on earth could you catch up with them um, they had it and here's the guys who made it happen you keep wondering well wow, who built all these roads and ports and forts and crossed the rivers they must have had an enormous backup system Uh, like some sort of gigantic uh, modern logistical support big civilian company Beshtel the Beshtel of the Roman Empire well there was no Beshtel of the Roman Empire These were the folks who did it. They're on Trajan's column. It's a rather wonderful illustration. There you see fully professional Roman legionnaires. They're hacking the timber. They're carrying the logs. They're being masons to get the stone in order. They're building their own logistical system because you didn't want to trust anybody else. Who's going to trust the Gauls to build your road system? Uh, If you were building a a bridge over the river Rhine, in the lower Rhine, you wanted it to last a long time. You didn't want it swept away by the the spring floods. You never knew when you would be sent across that bridge once again, or your son or your grandson who would also be in the Legion. So you made it work, and you built it good. How long could it go on? Well, we know how long approximately it went on. And it's still difficult when you look at all of the different explanations of why Rome fell to, to understand it. I mean, I do think it was a case of it just finally running out of interior energy. There were all sorts of reasons about replacing the Roman legions at the frontier with too many barbarian units... Uh, about increasing decadence, uh, demographic fall-off. Some of you who went to all-boys public schools would probably have been told that uh, it was hot baths and hot showers with killed off, killed off their potency. That's why St. Cuthbert's Grammar School Newcastle, you only got cold showers. Um, but it does happen. There's a premonition of it, which is captured very well in... Uh, Ed Lutfack's book on the grand strategy of the Roman Empire, which is too much detail here. What it shows is that as a a sort of forerunner or harbinger of the great crash of the 5th century, in the uh, early to mid-3rd century, the Romans suddenly found themselves attacked out of Mauritania, attacked in the the Middle East. in the desert, uh, Germanic tribes, Alamanni, attacking on many fronts, the Dacians coming in. And they managed to beat them off. But y- you get the problem. It's okay if you've got an enemy attacking on one front and you can send your reinforcements along those roads to that front. But if they're attacking on five or six or seven fronts in the same decade, then perhaps you cannot keep that up. Perhaps it... perhaps. You know, it was, a, it was a good innings. It was a Donald Bradman type innings. Uh, greater than anything that had been seen or was to be. But it eventually went. On the other hand, understanding its logistics, its underpinnings, gives us, I think, a good clue as to why it lasted so long. Let me go on to my second case, um, this is say Imperial Spain in the age of the 16th and 17th centuries, uh, brought together at the beginning of the, the end of the 15th century uh, by Ferdinand and Isabella's marriage, then creating, being part of a larger empire of Charles V and then becoming the Spanish Habsburg Empire, especially under Philip II and then uh, Philip III and Philip IV. Uh, They had, being Habsburgs, inherited property from all over the place, Uh, in the low countries, in Naples, in the Mediterranean, in uh, lower Rhineland, and needed a system of supply and support. They also needed their internal communications networks for reinforcement, for trade, uh, for finance, for diplomats to be taken to certain places, and this, roughly speaking, is the one that they created. Uh, their richest possession, uh, at least the richest one that Philip II inherited, was undoubtedly uh, the Low Countries, the Spanish Netherlands, because of the sheer wealth of the trades, uh, basic staple trades of uh, herring, but also the longer distance trades. When the revolt of the Netherlands occurred, therefore, was not just an affront to Philip and his extreme. Catholicism, it was also a massive diminution of the resource and taxation supply of the empire. So, for the next 150 years, the monarchs of Spain attempted to deal with this problem. The war itself, just against the Netherlands, is known as the Eighty Years' War. How did you do it? Well, you started by supplying by sea from the northern Spanish or Portuguese ports after you'd acquired Portugal in 1580, sending reinforcements up the English Channel. When the Dutch pirates and the uh, English fleet got rather too dangerous, you had to find an alternative route. And the alternative route is that one called for so long uh, the Spanish road. Uh, The recruitment grounds for the Spanish army, the great imperial army, were overwhelmingly in Castile itself. The younger sons of knights and gentry being recruited into that army. Trained and mobilized in Madrid, marched to Barcelona, crossing the Mediterranean to Milano or Genoa, then going up the valleys along the Valtelline Valley. Uh, there were two alternative routes depending upon whether the French would interrupt you in France-Conte or not. And then down the Rhineland, on and on and on and on. There's uh, um, a wonderful first book by uh, the great Geoffrey Parker on uh, the Spanish Road and the Revolt of the Netherlands. Uh, I'd like graduate students in this room to listen to the listen to this. Uh, in one of his lectures at um, Cambridge, John Elliott. The great historian of Spain, of Olivares, of Philip. John Eliot asked his undergraduate students, how was it possible that Spain could keep supplying along this route year after year, season after season, for 80 years? What it must have been like to have like, marched along that. A new platoon, a new battalion going there. So Eliot uh, applied for a travel grant. Uh, sorry, uh, Parker applied for a travel grant from his college and uh, that summer set off to Madrid, walked to Barcelona, got a bum boat to Genoa and walked through the Swiss Valleys and down the Rhine. By the time he got to Amsterdam, he knew what his future was going to be. He knew he had to learn Spanish, Dutch Italian, as well as his German and French if he was going to make a good job of it. It was a superb system. Um, But this one is still like Rome's, just European-based, but uh, Spain, of course, went further afield because it was the very first international trading network. This is uh, from the Times Atlas of World History, it is, must be some time after that 1580 annexation of um, Portugal, I think, because it is including Portuguese territories. And in more detail, probably too small writing here, it details the particular items of trade, whether those items are slaves uh, or spices or silver, It shows a remarkable secret route that the Spanish had for 150, 200 years, uh, taking the the Philippine galleons, which somehow left from Manila and then somehow appeared at uh, Acapulco. And in fact, we now know went all the way up via the Aleutians and Alaska and down past British Columbia uh, to keep well away from Dutch and uh, English piracy and predators it it hung together very well fueled of course by the mass of silver from the Potosi silver mines in Peru Uh, with a well trained army a good communication system and a large inflow of funds uh, you could keep yourself going Well, what could stop you well Uh, making too many enemies. It's not a good trick to make too many enemies. Uh, And Spain found, because of religious wars, but because of its need to defend its trades, because of the constant threat in the Mediterranean from the Turks and their allies in Algeria, etc., that it had to be engaged in, in many directions. This is uh, a wonderful kind of analysis of uh, the eight areas of conflict of Philip II's empire. Either at actual war or armed neutrality where you needed to have protection of ships, convoys, and so on. Um, you observe two things. It was only in the, law, the year of our Lord 1577 that Philip had one year of peace. And you also observe that the going to war, the black colouring, gets stronger and stronger and stronger as you move to the end of his reign. When he when he ceases, just a few years before his rival Elizabeth, look what he has bequeathed to his poor son. Uh, about half a dozen major wars. They struggle on. They they reinvent themselves under the great uh, Grand Duke of Olivares. They reorganize better. They they keep recruiting and recruiting. And then they also have something like a fairly sudden falling apart. This is the Spanish collapse. That uh, multitude of... uh, Revolts by the Catalans, by the Portuguese, Andalusia, revolts in Naples, uh, acquisitions steadily by the French, who had far fewer enemies to deal with, um, and by about the, the 1660s, 1670s, while it has still kept its transoceanic possessions, it is falling to the status of a secondary power. Not the great power that Francis Bacon and others feared a hundred years earlier, the third example is more familiar to you British Empire. Um, perhaps my remarks will be briefer it 's at end of a century map all the places in red it's, uh, it's, it's what the British imperialists loved Mercator projections um, meant that Canada was much bigger than the United States <laughs> for a start mind you it meant that Greenland was much bigger than Canada but uh, it was just full of ice um, like Phillips worldwide only uh, even larger in terms of land occupied and land size Uh, approximately one quarter of the territorial extent of the globe at the height of the empire immediately after the first world war Uh, you can see uh, lots and lots of detail lots and lots of names and you see lots and lots of lines across uh, the waters of the globe let's take a better look I asked a question uh, at the beginning whether these things like the Roman communications and supply and support system grew organically, just after campaign after campaign, you then had another road, another fortification, etc., or whether purposefully. Uh, when John Seeley, the great Cambridge historian, wrote in his Essays, uh, the expansion of England in uh, 1883, that the British Empire appeared to have grown uh, in a fit of uh, absence of mind. That was higgledy piggledy, he was all over the place. It's clear that Sir John uh, was not privy to the meetings of the Colonial Defence and Cable Communications Subcommittee of the Committee of Imperial Defence. Yes, a large number of the older coaling ports the older imperial ports had been acquired from as early as the late 17th century in the West Indies, for example um, That key port of Gibraltar had been picked up in the war against Spain in the first decade of the 18th century Others were picked up later Singapore in 1819 uh, Hong Kong in 1842 The cape taken from the Dutch at the end of the uh, uh, Napoleonic War. The, uh, even back in that time, it just doesn't seem to me particularly random. There were a considerable number of places that the British gave back after the war. They'd been there, seen it, didn't want it. Uh, Here it is again. Um they wanted the strategical control points uh, they wanted it because they needed to reinforce the thing which uh, most concerned them namely their maritime supremacy their naval mastery they wanted to have safe ports to get their convoys into in time of war they wanted supplies naval supplies in the 18th century of, of canvas and hemp and timber, when you got your mainmast wrecked by a storm in the South Atlantic, were absolutely critical. You wanted those ports. You needed those ports. They were these lines were the lifeblood of an empire, which was getting more and more lucrative, especially after the Seven Years' War. Um, so it was systematised. The uh, coming of coal uh, or steam. Uh, power to uh, shipping was for the British uh, a, a significant advantage. Many at the time regretted it. They thought they had control of the access to North American timber and other supplies. Um, they didn't like these noisy, clunking, spewing machines in the place of a lovely Nelsonic frigate. But they had a superb domestic advantage uh, because um, they had the, the Saudi Arabia of the 19th century, that is to say, South Wales. Now, I don't doubt if anybody in this room has ever compared South Wales with Saudi Arabia before. It's always the first time. Um, what I meant by that is that the, the, the special anthracite coals of South Wales coal field had a much greater kinetic efficiency than coals from anywhere else in the world. Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Australia, the Ruhr, Silesia, none of them matched. And so you got by about 1875, you got this astonishing network system where hundreds if not thousands of small colliers would be leaving Swansea and Cardiff to go to ports all over the world bringing Welsh stoking coals and steaming coals usually picking up any sorts of ballast on the way back, timber, whatever, didn't matter. But you were actually fueling the entire globalized trading system of, of the world out of South Wales coal fields. And it was yours. Uh, this, uh, the, the disadvantage to France just in the coming of that sort of discovery, geological discovery, w- was enormous. Um... The coaling, therefore, was open to uh, all the ships of the world in peacetime and then closed off to them very rapidly in wartime. It was there for when the British were sending reinforcing squadrons to the Mediterranean, to the Far East. Uh, It made everybody else dependent, I mean truly dependent. This is what I, I have difficulty teaching my E.L. undergraduates, that thing that the general said about armchair strategists who move an army over the Alps with a stroke of a pen. my sophomore armchair strategists move the main fleet to Singapore without thinking how it ever gets there. There's a wonderful lament in one of Tirpitz's, Admiral Tirpitz's, Private letters when, it, in response to the Boxer uprising in China in 1900, the great powers each decide to send an expedition to work together to suppress this quasi nationalist uprising and, and to escort those uh, with fleets to be a demonstration of not just the land power but the sea power. Sir uh, Pitt's um, And the Kaiser, of course, was very excited about this. Remember, he went up to Wilhelmshaven and made his famous Hun speech, or Hunnenraider, where he told the Germans to go and act just as their ancestors, the Huns, had done thousands of years ago. This is why British wartime propaganda could refer to the Germans as the Huns, borrowed it from the Kaiser. Very inventive guy, Wilhelm. What Pitts was that the uh, eight battleships of the first and second Geschwader uh, curled at Wilhelmshaven, curled again uh, at Dover, curled again at Gibraltar. You can see where they're going, can't you? Malta, Alexandria, Aden, Colombo, Kalmantan, Singapore, and Hong Kong. Uh, They were just incredibly dependent. This was peacetime, uh, but Tirpitz could see that there were going to be certain limitations to what he could do with his high seas fleet if it ever came to wartime. The cable communications are uh, possibly even more extraordinary. When the first transatlantic landlines were invented in the 1840s, 50s, and 60s, it was in that age of mid-Victorian, John Stuart Mill-like hope for eternal peace. And all of the poetry of the time or the messages which are sent between Queen Victoria and various American presidents as a new transatlantic line is laid all of those were about how the telegraphs were bringing us all together. They were binding us. By the time the British had had a great scare of the Eastern Crisis of 1878 and c- could see the Russians advancing ever southwards towards the Gulf and to the Far East, and a lot of French cruiser squadrons being developed in the f- new French colonies. They began to see the cable communication, especially water ones, as an advantage provided they had exclusivity. So there was set up in the early 1880s the cable uh, communication subcommittee of the Colonial Defense Committee. For the next 30 years, it plotted this net. There was absolutely no absence of mind at all in this system Uh, countries which were friendly countries but were getting a bit dodgy you would still run cable lines in but you were also running extra ones around this was by 1902 and 1903 when they got the trans-pacific cables laid which was a staggering feat this was the all red line when war broke out in western Europe on August 1914, uh, British naval commanders in Hong Kong learned about it a minute and a half later. Um, Nobody else had it. Uh, The British Cable and Wireless Company was possibly the single greatest sustained communicator to the British Empire for about 60 to 70 years. It had special privileges, not surprisingly because it brought special tools not only laid the cables it could repair them in mid-Atlantic and what's more it could snip other people's cables belatedly the French the Germans the United States tried to catch up the British were about 40 years ahead when war came in August 1914 a British cable ship let, left Porth Cuthno if you go down to the bottom end of Cornwall now you can see one of the most marvellous little museums in the world, which is the uh, Cable and Wireless Museum. Let left Port Kuznoy and went out and snipped all the German cables to the outside world. Germans found it impossible to communicate that way. Since they were also at war with Russia, they could not communicate in the other direction. They moved on to radio traffic, And radio traffic was actually a less secure form of communication, by far, than undersea cable. It was Room 40 who decoded a radio message sent from Zimmermann, the undersecretary, to the German embassy in Mexico City, proposing an alliance with Mexico, Uh, to join in the war on Germany's side in 1917, and Mexico would be duly rewarded with New Mexico, Texas, and Arizona. The British thoughtfully translated or deciphered the message and passed it on to the American embassy in London. It was very hard to get out of this. The United States, by the end of the First World War, the United States was obsessed with its dependence upon the old imperial cousin. Hence its enormous investment in radio communications, in ciphers, and in long-range pan-American airlines flights across Latin America to the Pacific and elsewhere. It all sort of hung together in a way that makes me think that there was uh, a lot of intelligent work, brain work here. So i finish with one last slide. One of my favorite ones, the incredible marine artist Ian Hamilton uh, who does these just absolutely beautiful uh, warship portraits always located historically and in their setting with a page or so commentary here is uh, HMS Hood a great lengthy shapely battle cruiser and the Barham Queen Elizabeth class heavy battleship anchored as you can see in the great harbour of Valletta But it isn't just the nice ships. It's the harbor is in Britain's hands. The cable communications coming in and out that harbor are British ones. Uh, The new wireless systems are British. The new airfields are going to be British, which is very lucky for Malta when Mussolini enters the war in 1940. Um, This system lasted... An inordinate long time, right through the Second World War, despite the losses in the Far East, keeping Gibraltar, keeping Malta, keeping Freetown, keeping the Cape, keeping Trincomalee and Aden were vital for that war effort. And then, as you well know, it it goes away very fast. I'm not giving a lecture on the fall of a... British Empire tonight but it, it also is to do something with the overextension the um, massive investment in fighting which left you bankrupt at the end of the war uh, the animation of nationalist sentiments across the dependent empire and commonwealth and just a sheer incapacity to pay for this war. Um, so between 1947 India and 1970 71 in the Gulf, uh, Singapore, etc., it goes. The reason it stayed was because some people managed to put these various items together into a coherent imperial strategy. What of today? I'm going to not dwell too long on this because we may only be halfway through the story of the American Empire. We might be three-quarters of the way through the story of the American empire. Who knows? But just uh, think a bit about how would you try to capture, in some form of cartographic way, the American strategic imprint on the globe in its uh, meridian hour. Um, Well, I ended the British one with warships. I'll begin the American one, with a disposition uh, graph, a scatter graph of the location of all 15, 14 of the American giant uh, nuclear-powered aircraft carriers. So if you look to the lower left-hand corner, you see that some of the aircraft carriers are in port or refitting or changing crews, uh, but they are there across the globe. This was a distinct logistical advantage to go nuclear in the form of propulsion because the fuel rods in a carrier do not need renewing for up to two years of steaming you actually didn't need those coaling stations or those oil depots at Malta and Aden and elsewhere they don't have to be as dependent upon land ports as their predecessors were but they're there alright and they can move of course As I think I mentioned when I talked to you a while ago about um, American military capabilities, uh, the USS Kitty Hawk, which is down in this little corner here, was in its home port of Yosasuku in Japan, where 9-11 occurred. It had um, cleared port in a day with its escorting destroyers and cruisers and everything, went immediately to the Persian Gulf, Steaming about 38 miles an hour, about 32 knots, uh, for in six days was in the Persian Gulf. A bit like those Roman communication systems, when you think of it. It cleared its decks of all of its aircraft and went as a forward landing base for the aircraft coming into uh, uh, attacking the Caliban. So that if any of the aircraft were damaged and were coming back limping, they could come right onto the Kitty Hawk. Um, this was worldwide power projection. And not just at sea. Uh, this is a Pentagon map of just a uh, year and a half ago, just of the US Army, not the Marine Corps which, remember, itself is bigger than the entire personnel of the British Armed Services. Not the Air Force deployments. I find it very hard to get a map of U.S. air bases across the globe. They are not very communicative, Uh, probably because of all of this rendition stuff. Um, Keep it quiet. Um, The figures abroad are quite astonishing many of these are small military advisor groups anti drug trade groups in Colombia advisors to the Filipino army against the guerrillas in the south but they are very very extensive and highly expensive overseas deployments so what With the lessons of Rome and Spain and Britain in mind, what might one say to our American successors concerning the nuts and bolts of empire? Well, right now, I think what one could say is, uh, you certainly seem to have a lot of nuts and bolts, if by that you mean hard weapon systems. Fighters, fighter bombers, aircraft carriers, attack submarines, submarine launch ballistic missile systems. You have very good intelligence and communication system. So the problem may not be in the hard, physical, material, metal, tungsten, silicon, nuts and bolts. The problem may be elsewhere. You may be starting to get a little bit too close to the Philip II to Philip IV problem, which was less to do with recruiting those troops from Castile and their sons and grandsons, than to do with uh, becoming fiscally and financially less capable, less strong, less supported. Perhaps the things I'm going to show now... Are trends which can be reversed uh, perhaps it just doesn't have to go in a line downwards um, Alec Cancross, the economic advisor to the government was a person who coined out wonderful um, a, poem, uh, a trend is a trend is a trend the question is when will it end and he goes on to say well, you know, will it keep going down or turn up or bang or whimper that is not a very strong fiscal position in which to a great world power should have not particularly since um, those trade deficits generate enormous surpluses to foreign chiefly export led economies who then are purchasing one, one and a half close on two trillion dollars of US treasury bonds and I said it before and I said it again when uh, laissez-faire economists of the Chicago school say well it's alright Professor Kennedy because the Chinese and the Japanese and the Koreans and the Indians have nowhere else to put their dollars so they'll always be buying dollars and we'll cover our deficits and everybody will be okay I always feel well If you really think like that, I can't help you. Uh, I really cannot help you. It's okay, Philip, we can keep borrowing from those Geneva bankers or the Lyon bankers or anybody's bankers. We just send another cohort of Castilian troops to the Netherlands because we can borrow. Um, Borrow without doing anything about it fiscally. I sometimes tell my American friends, especially banker friends, that uh, one of the great reasons undoubtedly why Britain won all of its coalition wars between 1689 and 1814 with coming off with the loss of American colonies but some other gains in the war of American independence why did Britain win against a country like France which had four times the population and was so much more wealthier in land and property it won because it had an extraordinarily strong and responsible fiscal system coming out of the glorious revolution of 1688 establishing an independent bank of England Uh, Government spending had to go through the House of Commons. There could not be forced loans. If the government rushed up to the Commons at the beginning of the War of Austrian Succession and said, my God, we need to build 20 new frigates immediately, the Commons would say, well, we will pass the legislation for that increased spending. But you have to tell us now. On which particular goods are you applying the tax which will pay for the cost of the frigates? You don't get anything for free. You don't add $57 billion to the Pentagon's budget for next year and say the Chinese will pay for it. (laughs) If the American taxpayer had to pay for it, we'd be looking at something rather different. It meant that British fiscal probity was such that even its enemy bankers only wanted to loan to the Treasury. The French send millions and millions of pounds via Geneva to buy British government bonds during these great wars. Well, Why not? You got your money back. You never get your money back from the feckless kings of France or their cousins south of the Pyrenees, there's no chance. Um, Excess, perhaps, overstretch in terms of troops, excess reckless spending, a very heavy trade deficit. I think I could argue, and some could argue, that they are all reversible given 10 years of solid, fiscally responsible policies. It's not foreordained. It just depends on getting leaders who have some guts and can explain things. But in the meantime, as the U.S. ignores its fiscal underpinnings beginning to wear out, the world is not stopping. There are shifts in the economic weights. You don't have to believe every last point of the projection by Goldman Sachs, the now notorious article of December 2003 on the rise of the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India and China, large, populous, fast-growing countries, which were beginning to move the global economic weights. Uh, such that the forecast of the uh, Goldman Sachs people would be that the U.S. would not be the number one economy by the middle of this century. The only amendment to that in the later reports from the same team and from the, economic, the Economist Intelligence Unit is they think the overtaking will occur by 2025. Long-term shifts in the global productive balances have long-term strategic consequences and this at a time when a US is facing different sorts of challenges, rivals etc the challenge of asymmetrical warfare, there's one of those splendid carriers uh, looks like the USS Nimitz I think, sailing across the Indian Ocean and there are the sort of weapons and attack systems of those who cannot possibly build such a carrier so they're going to hurt Americans and American trade and credit In other ways, by asymmetrical attacks on tourists, on airports, on wherever they can. Uh, This is a sort of challenge, a non-state challenge, which is difficult to deal with. might be something new. And then there are possible state challenges. Nobody's suggesting that the People's Republic of China is on the point of launching a few Nimitz-class nuclear attack carriers. That'll be about 10 or 12 years away, I think. Um, What it's doing is developing weapon systems which are driving the U.S. Navy nuts because they are themselves asymmetrical. Uh, 500 500-mile-range low-sea-skimming missiles you can't even pick them up on your radar screen ever more improved Russian fighters converted pulled to pieces by Chinese engineers improvements put in and out they go that's that that destroyer there former Russian one you can probably tell by uh, the lines on it photographed by an RAF Nimrod crossing the North Sea as it went out it had just been sold to China They'll improve it. And the ultra-quiet diesel submarines, the latest ones of which are getting a wrapping around them, like the wrapping around stealth bombers and stealth fighters. You can't hear them. And ASDIC can pick them up. Um, so there's a lot of challenges for our number one, and I leave you with the thought that if it wants the long Bradman-like innings of the Roman Empire or the pretty considerable innings of the Spanish and the British it might start thinking a bit more seriously about its funding its financial its logistical underpinnings whether it is not too overstretched when American Secretary of Defense says there's no place in the world that isn't of any significance to us I think Lord above you know there must be some islets somewhere <laughs> there must be places in the Pacific we don't have to have uh, and then the final one because this is how I want to end with uh, something for you to take back and think about these three are pie charts uh, they show that of the 6.6 billion people living in our world today 4.6%, not even 5%, are in the U.S. So it is less than one twentieth of the world's population. It's an extremely productive nation and has been since the coming of the Second Industrial Revolution a hundred and so years ago. So it, while it, it produces about the same as Europe now, but it produces still about a fifth of the world's output. Uh, because of uh, Congress's repeated ability to lie backwards when it's being asked for sums of money for the Pentagon, uh, the United States is now spending as much as a single nation than all the other 191 defense ministries of the globe combined. So here is a question for any in room who may be rash enough to be economists and to believe in the theory of conversion uh, of economies how long my question is can a country with less than 5% of the world's population even with 20% of its product and that's likely to go down in the next 20 years how long can it keep up half of the world's defense expenditure because convergence is coming And the convergence is not coming from this direction. It's highly unlikely that the United States will have 50% of the world's population, right? The convergence is coming sooner or later in the other direction. Let's all meet together in about 145 years' time and see if I'm right
0: We have about uh, 25, 27 minutes uh, in which to put some questions. Um, can I use up the uh, chairman's prerogative while we're preparing for this? There will be a microphone going around the room, by the way, so please wait uh, for that to arrive first. Can I just go back to the uh, report that Donald Rumsfeld commissioned on empires, which I think also included the Mongolian Empire, uh, Alexander's Empire, perhaps the Hellenistic uh, Empires? And one of the very interesting points made in that report was the reason why the Roman Empire survived 600 years was because of soft power. That is that along the communications links went the ideas, the language, the law, religion with Christianity in the last 150 years of at least the Western Empire, and the way of life. And that the great strength of the Roman Empire was that with a few exceptions there was no internal dissent uh, effectively even in the western part there were a few peasant revolts etc but no internal dissent that was politically significant so could I just ask you to to comment where in the nuts and bolts the communication of ideas, ways of life patterns of thinking uh, is or is not useful in prolonging the life of of these empires that you mentioned and perhaps some of the other empires you, you haven't mentioned
1: I think it's a very good question and uh, very pertinent. Um, It's true that there were many intangible or less easy to measure aspects of the Roman Empire, the Latin language. Um, Engineering, but not just engineering roads or engineering... No uh, slingshots or something. Um, and it's also true that most great empires are not just killing machines. They usually carry out what Robinson and Gallagher some years ago called acts of collaboration. You're actually looking for uh, subconsuls. Uh, collaborators with a non-quizzling type uh, implication to the word people who will uh, find it beneficial to be within the system you you get protected by this system Um, clearly by the second century AD there were a very large number of Spanish farmers and uh, Cheltenham uh, prosperous yeomen who were quite glad they were in uh, the Roman Empire. They didn't have to pay for it. Um, they, they got a, a large number of benefits. And therefore, um, moving on to modern times, I think the, uh, the lesson is confirmed. If you can somehow make your empire appeal be more attractive to others than a third party... Uh, you're likely to be tolerated you're quite likely to gain allies or support or emulation for the things that you would like this is soft power undoubtedly Uh, I would just caution so I think it's there Uh, I think that um, some of the cultural impacts of the British Empire whether it's the language itself or its obsession with cricket um are intangibles but they're definitely there the the thing I would caution about though is the assumption made by certain of the imperialists from Lord Curzon to Donald Rumsfeld that this attractiveness would last forever and it was unquestioned and in fact the attractiveness of the great power needs to be earned uh, again and again uh, when it isn't earned when there is a mixture of Amritsa massacres and things like that and the attractiveness goes away when the great power pra- preaches one thing but practices another it goes away so I would grant immediately enormous benefits to the US because of language, software Soft power, but I wouldn't want to push it to being something that um, would always count in the U.S.'s favour. Indeed, uh, over the past seven years, I think we have witnessed, by in terms of global opinion polls, significant diminution of the appeal of American soft power because they didn't get it right.
0: Thank you.
2: Yes. Uh, can you just
0: to wait, to wait for the?
2: It. Sorry. could you just can wait for the microphone? Oh, It seems to me that uh, the United States is facing the kind of problems that Britain was facing 100 years ago. A British politician talked about Britain as the weary titan. I think the United States is the weary titan today. The way Britain, uh, it seems to me, coped with the challenge, multiple challenges a 100 years ago was to build a li- an alliance system and to appease its rivals in order to focus on the main challenger which was Germany. And of course Britain prevailed more or less in the First and the Second World War and it was able to hand over the baton of power to um, a closely affiliated power. I wonder what lessons from the way Britain managed uh, a multipolar world and multipolar challenges, uh, what lessons uh, British experience has for the United States, which is in the kind of position now as a weary titan facing its Boer War, facing its imperial Germany? You know what are the lessons for the United States today thank you that 's a uh, very good question.
1: I thought I was going to disagree with you uh, in after the first few sentences, uh, I, I then I decided I I don't disagree with you because of what you went on to ask. What are the lessons? What is there perhaps in your poise, in your uh, attitude of mind, in your sense of understanding? Challenge, which which could be useful, because if one simply says the United States today looks rather like Britain, the weary titan, the, the term used by Joseph Chamberlain as he appealed to the dominions to help pay for the South African war we are the weary titan laboring under the too vast orb of our own fate then a large number of people would say well look I mean this is nonsense that that was a small island state which miraculously was running a quarter of the globe this is a gigantic total continent of a far larger you know, productive capacity and far larger population so you're not you're not really making a good comparison so you, I don't think you are making a good comparison if it is simply comparing the physicality or size clearly the US has massive resources so the question is can those resources be more cleverly deployed to keep the position that most Americans want not at the top can it be done by using the tools of diplomacy and alliances more successfully than has been done in the past few years Uh, can it be done by using the tools of alliances and diplomacy at which the Americans were quite wonderful in the years after the Second World War in terms of the formation of NATO of the Marshall Plan of a whole set of friendships and alliances Um, so the differences in a material geographic uh, form are vast the similarities of learning a certain amount of patience uh, give and take uh, not always being at the front uh, not always panicking either Uh, sometimes I I just wonder when I see these absolutely anxious debates now in the American strategic press about the Chinese are coming that they they seem to be in danger of counting all of the apparent strengths of somebody out there, thinking about all your weaknesses, but never flipping it over and saying, "Well, what are their weaknesses, and what are our latent strengths if we can use them the better?"
0: Yes, the middle. Of- Thank you very much for your remarks on a subject that I often debate as an armchair strategist. Um, You showed a a bar graph um, comparing the GDPs of the largest economies in the world projected for 2050. Mm -hmm. Um, How relevant do you think it would be to remove China, possibly Russia, and possibly France from that graph and simply add up the rest of the bars into a single bar? um answering in as non-obvious a way as possible if you can.
1: <laughs> I, I don't know why I would do that. Uh, <laughs> so perhaps uh, my reply to you would be to what end? <clears throat> um, I thought for a minute you were going to say why don't we just remove China and Russia and France? <laughs> 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 um... We we can come back and discuss that that, uh, graph, the the bar chart. It's it's got a lot of difficulties with it, Uh, but it has a core validity. Should the growth rates of the past 12 years of those seven or eight countries be approximately the compounded growth rates of the next uh, 40 years. But there's so many big shoulds in there, nonetheless uh, significant to strategists now. Because if a China is managing without internal collapse or rending, that's a big if, if it is managing to grow its economy at a rate of about 10% a year, then even if it keeps the percentage of its GDP on defense spending. Lower, it, it's just going to be doubling the size of its defence budget every six and a half to seven years. If it decides to increase its defence budget from about one and a half to two and a half percent and grows as well, it's going to have very, very significant capital resources to invest in newer weapon systems. So, you might, you know, hesitate to think how anybody could. Forecast exact figures for the year 2050, but the general drift is one that strategists ought to take seriously.
0: Question at the back there. Uh, Thank you. Uh, Can I just ask you whether you think uh, the European Union is an empire and how you rate its uh, prospects for survival? in comparison with the United States?
1: I don't think it's an empire. I think you would have to stretch the word to well beyond uh, any possible recognition uh, to do that. Uh, One, uh, but but I I do want to come on to your reference of European Union because one of the things I find odd about that BRICS uh, forecast is that it still treats the European nations as single economies. But if you stacked even the top five there, if you stacked the GDP of Germany, Britain, France, Italy, uh, Spain, you'd be getting a total product which would be already put it in third, if not uh, second place. Uh, But it's more likely to follow a a different path, a self-chosen path, which is a a federation of polities, a federation of compromises, a federation of different traditions, uh, increasingly, I think, prosperous if it doesn't do stupid things, and increasingly attractive to some more peripheral countries on its side. So it's going to play a very, very significant role in international politics, uh, not as measured by the traditional empire roles that I was describing in the four cases I gave you tonight. the right back. Yes. You see? Oh, dear. Oh, God, there's more people. <laughs> uh, I wanted to ask... Um, if you could comment on the desirability of the continuation of the American Empire, if we want to call it that, because I think you could pose a number of reasons why we might welcome its decline. Uh, okay, we're still going to leave whether it's an empire or not to the, the, you know, theological, how many angels on a pin, uh, folks. Is it desirable that it uh, keeps the position it presently has and plays the roles it has? Uh, you'd have to go into some counterfactuals even to begin answering that. Um, Do you expect that it's just a slow, steady, amiable decline or that uh, it it would resist shifts in the global weights and therefore we could be in for trouble and turbulence? Secondly, if it is to lose its preeminence... would you be happier with whoever the successor number one empire was uh, probably most people across the globe uh, would say they would not be happy with any of the contenders at least as single nations being in that position so uh, I don't think it will happen uh, I, don't, I just don't think we can keep electing administrations so stupid and offensive Every four years, for the rest of the uh, 21st century, just is inconceivable. Must be some people there who actually know about the world. Um, I don't know if it's going to happen. I don't think anything sudden or cataclysmic would be good. Anybody who rejoiced at that would probably be rejoicing too early. But I think a recognition by uh, American leaders of the importance of statecraft and of the different arenas in which to play American influence and persuasiveness, sometimes at the economic and trading level, sometimes at the soft power levels, uh, sometimes in regenerating international institutions, uh, would, uh, would actually keep it going in fish, and getting your fiscal house in order would keep it going for a very long time. Uh, The question, as I said, at the very end of the rise and fall of the great powers, (laughs) exactly 20 years ago this month, was the challenge the United States faces is the challenge of the management of long-term relative decline. And you have to figure in those adjectives, management, long-term relative and not jump immediately to the decline word. It's no nice just telling the neoconservatives that, but you might want to agree with me.
2: Yes. Second Um
0: You haven't specifically mentioned anything about um, demographic trends, both internally or internationally, both natural increase and decrease and mass migration. I wonder if there's anything Mm. that concerns in it. Uh, Anything you want to mention about that?
1: Okay, let me me repeat that because I'm not quite sure whether the voice up there carries carries back here. It was pointed out I didn't say anything at all about demographic trends and the relationship between either relatively increasing or decreasing population trends on say the caliber of influence and power and I think that's an extremely important question I, I'm glad, I'm glad, um, glad you, you made it um, and I leave the historical examples out of it but generally speaking uh, when Rome was growing its population was growing and this population of its allies was growing when Spain was growing it was also the Iberian Peninsula had a very solid demographic profile uh, Victoria, 19th century Britain grows four times in the course of that century um, but come, so uh, provided you have the productivity and the wherewithal to employ the growing population that becomes a strength a productive strength and then if you're stuck in a war it becomes a very serious strength to be able to recruit large numbers of farm boys from Iowa or uh, junior gentry from Castile Demographics at the moment, uh, well, we need about 20 additional lectures on this, are extraordinary in that they're going in so many different ways. Uh, Whatever we think of Mr. Putin as a very clever poker player and whatever we think of uh, the way in which he is so smartly using his oil surpluses, his biggest problem is the dying out of the Russian male population. It's losing 750,000 people a year they're not migrating that's just colossal uh, male mortality rates um, so it, it has an inherent demographic imploder to be laid aside to things which are strengths to it um, certain other countries like the Ukraine and Japan are going down absolute terms so is Italy uh, others are changing interestingly um, I was at Mass on Sunday at uh, English Martyrs in, uh, in Cambridge and uh, I went to 1215 Mass and it turned out to be the Polish Mass and then I realized that these were not simply jokes about 2 million Polish plumbers uh, they were there with their kids uh, we and Ireland and the Dutch and the Netherlands are the countries in Europe which are forecast to have steadily increasing populations on a tight island that gives some problems, but it's better than downward spiral. Now, the US seems to me, like Australia and Canada, to have the most possible conceivably favorable demographic profile and future. It's forecast to rise, that's true, and some of the rise is coming from immigration, that's also true and from the fact that the families of immigrants, usually in the first or second generation, have higher fertility rates than those of established stock. But the forecast rate of increase in the United States is absolutely absorbable by the sheer size of a place and the amount of domestic resources. And uh, yes, there is deep concern if you are a border town somewhere in the south and there is completely unrestricted immigration without any provision of the necessary social fabric for the new immigrants. But in the largest macro-economic and macro-demographic sense, the U.S.'s population projection is one of the strongest elements in this odd mix of weaknesses and strengths. And I'm therefore really glad you brought it up.
0: Yes, Um,
2: I'm wondering how how important you think soft power is in comparison to political power, military power and economic power and in your view, which country at the moment has the strongest soft power?
1: How important do I think soft power is compared with these other harder measures of power and who possesses most of that soft power uh, at the moment? Uh, I'm not trying to... uh, dodge your first question it 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 simply is a fact that uh, soft power is most useful in peaceful circumstances (laughs) and uh, the extent of its utility rather shrinks if you are in severely challenged and hostile circumstances and then you begin to wonder about the uh the, the desirability and the usefulness of, of hard power. Um, in those jokes about you know, Europeans being from Venus and Americans from Mars you can say, well, the Europeans are superior because they have all of this attractiveness and cultural cohesion or whatever. Americans are cowboys um, and they overspend on defense and therefore soft power is a a much more significant thing. It is for most people most of the time, but not for all people all of the time, when you suddenly feel, you suddenly have the need for defense systems, for preparation. Hard power is, after all, an insurance policy. Uh, A hard power expenditure of the U.S. of, say, 2.5% of its GDP is the equivalent of you spending two and a half percent of your income on a house fire and flood insurance system Uh, you don't need it most of the time Uh, but it comes in useful Uh, you don't need those aircraft carriers most of the time but you'd like to have them if something really chronic happened in the globe Um, so you can see the way my answer to the second part has got to go it's all very well to criticize a big super nation for all of its muscle flexing and hard power, but A, we might need it, and B, it wouldn't take a new American president with some subtlety, diplomacy, and political nuance to recover a very high soft power ranking for the republic so of all the things I've talked about it seems to me that soft power might be the more easily reversible element than the others I can't see those Goldman Sachs trends really being reversible though the the projections may be out a fair way Uh, I can't see the tendency to go for asymmetrical weapons to hurt the Americans being reversible that's where it's going The soft power is reversible with sensible soft power policies. we just have to wait and see if there's any out there.
0: We've got time for one very last question. (coughs) Hi. um, Given the um, national security strategy of the States um, alludes to fighting for democracy and freedom, which are universal values, rather than the focus being on maintaining its power or managing its decline, shouldn't it be on the U.S. shouldn't it be on the U.S. developing an international society and international institutions?
1: The question is about the statements and parts of the national security strategy documents uh, of recent years where uh, the advancement of democracy worldwide is is identified as the grand strategic goal, um, which uh, sounds very nice on paper, is very difficult to accomplish in certain parts of the world, Uh, is often not accompanied by the correct instruments to assist recovering societies to advance towards democracy, uh, which is mixed in with too much heavy measures and support of non-democratic regimes and societies. So it looks cherry-picking, hypocritical. And finally, there is a criticism which, interestingly, comes from the older conservatives in the U.S., the Henry Kissinger folks that you know it's very unwise to go around with the global crusade statement as your grand strategy preserving the liberties of free nations is one thing advancing democracy all over and in places where the priorities of the inhabitants may simply be for law and order and getting a decent meal and good water with parliamentary elections coming down the road advancing this in the way the neo and imperialist liberals have done it is possibly not a wise grand strategic principle compared with looking for steady transformations of societies who could become more and more allies and more and more liberated uh, this is why it's been fascinating to be in the U- US of Pastly, especially these past two Bush administrations because of the venom with which the neocons and the old
0: conservatives just loathe each other very gratifying <laughs> and on that note uh, we will have to come to a conclusion I suppose the uh, best example of soft power that I can recall from the British Empire is contained in one of those anecdotes in uh, uh, Jan Morris's book, uh, Pax Britannica. And on the day of the uh, Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee, a tiger escaped from the zoo in Lahore and a brave zookeeper commanded it to return to its cage in the name of Queen Victoria, and it actually did. <laughs> uh, in my department, when we send people off in field studies, we don't ask them to uh, march the whole length of the Spanish road. Um, but then we're wimps I think in the social sciences and historians are made of sterner and stronger stuff. I say this looking at uh, Chai uh, in the background there. But I'd like to thank you very much uh, for giving us uh, your thoughts on, on Empire Splendid uh, Talk. Thanks again. Thank you.